Let's look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. This is God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve the Lord. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, as we now come before this, your word from Malachi chapter 3, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey all that you would have us to know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We said there just a second ago, it would be wonderful to be remembered in a service like this and someone would mention our name, but isn't it more important that the Lord would remember us and that the Lord does remember us? One of the questions that I think raises in this text is, how can we know that the Lord will remember us in eternity? How can we know that? How can we know that He will do so? Well, I think when you look at this text, especially in its ordering and breakdown, you see two groups here in this text. One that the Lord, one group of people that we know the Lord will remember. They're given to us there in verses 16 through 18. These are those who fear the Lord. We'll look more at them. But then there's a group that's mentioned in this text who clearly is challenging the Lord, debating the Lord. In fact, all the way throughout the book of Malachi, haven't we? We've had these arguments, these debates that have gone on between the Lord and a certain section of the people of Israel. Even beginning right back in Malachi chapter 1, in that very opening verse, you remember the Lord said to them, I have loved you. And they rejoined back, how have you loved us? Right? They've questioned His love. They've questioned his care. They've questioned his justice, whether he is good. And here again, they're questioning a sense of his justice, his goodness. They have questions about why it is that he's responding in the way that he responds. But they do so not from a place of faith. They do, for, do so from a place of cynicism, a place of disbelief, a place of doubting the Lord. And when you begin to see that group compared to the group that feared the Lord, you, you begin to see that they're actually pursuing different things. They're pursuing different things. And here's how we will know whether the Lord will remember us in eternity. It depends on the kind of treasure that we're pursuing. It depends on the kind of treasure that we're pursuing. There are two types of treasure that are presented within this text. There is an earthly treasure that we can seek after, and there is a heavenly treasure that we can seek after. In verses 13 to 15, we see this first group seeks God for earthly treasure. And that will become clear as we look at the text. 
But the second group, verses 16 through 18, seek God as their heavenly treasure. They seek God as if He is the treasure of their life. And as I was looking at the text, seeing all these economic terms, all of these wealth terms that were bubbling up to the surface of the text, I couldn't help but be reminded of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. It's a section in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord Jesus Christ tells us about these two kinds of treasures. And what He says to us there is, don't lay up for yourself earthly treasure where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead... Lay up treasures which are in heaven, treasures where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And then it says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. In many ways, I think this text is asking us, do you you think the Lord will remember you in eternity? And in some ways, the Lord answers back to us today and He says, What treasure are you pursuing? What treasure are you pursuing? Let's look at these two groups. Let's look first at this this group that seeks God for earthly treasure. Notice the language of this group. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. This is the seventh time that this group has come before the Lord in Malachi with some kind of debate, some kind of challenging word. And as we come to the last and and the the, the final of these uh, debates, we see that God finally calls it like it is. You've been hard against me in your words. You've literally been strong against me in the Lord. You've positioned yourself not as one who's inclined to me in trust, but as one who is against me as an enemy. As I hear your words, they come to me as a doubter, as a disbeliever, as one who's a cynic with regards to who I am. Your words come to me as a hard word. And here as I overhear you speaking to one another, here's what I hear you say. Three really bold claims here. Number one, it is vain to serve the Lord. That's what you say. It is vain to serve the Lord. I wonder what you think of when you hear that word vain. I wonder if you go back in the Bible to Exodus chapter 20, maybe to commandment number 3, where we're told that we should not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Maybe you go back to that text. Maybe you go back to Ecclesiastes, where the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that that, um, all of life is vanity. Vanity of vanity, such as all all of life. When we think of this word vain, we sometimes use it in the modern sense of someone who's obsessed with their appearance, someone who's always consumed with them themselves. They are vain, right? You probably think this song is about you, <laughs> right? That's where some of our minds go when we think about the word vain. But in the context of the Old Testament in Hebrew, this word vain literally means empty or worthless, It's an economic sense that this text carries. It means that there is no good payout with serving the Lord. Like the paycheck is not very good in serving the Lord. It's vain to serve the Lord. Now that is connected directly to the next statement that they make there in Verse 14, what is the profit? There's another economic term that's given here. Notice they're looking for some treasure. 
What is the profit of our keeping his charge or following according to his authority or his commands? Why should we keep the Lord's charge or walk as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Why should we do that? There's not any real profit in it. It's vain to serve the Lord. It's vain to follow under his authority or his charge, to march, as it were, according to his commands. Or if you've seen that you've fallen short, to put on the black clothes of mourning. In fact, that's actually the language for mourning. It literally just means black in the Hebrew. It's, it's to have sorrow for your sin. To be, as it were, in the sackcloth and ashes. To, to be in mourning over the grief of your sin. So he says here, it's vain to serve the Lord. There's no profit if you follow his commands, and there's no profit if you mourn over not following his commands. It just doesn't really pay to follow the Lord. And, and then he says, you know, if you're going to strike a business deal, here's where you can get profit. Notice what he says there in verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Oh, these are the people who are blessed, not the, not the meek who shall inherit the earth, but the arrogant are those who will be blessed. Notice, evildoers not only prosper. Ah, oh, there's that economic turn again. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Hmm. Listen, it's not a good deal if you're serving the Lord. It's vain to serve the Lord. Doesn't matter if you follow His commands or if you get really, really sad over not following His commands. Neither one are ultimately going to give you uh, the prosperity that you're looking for. But let me tell you, if you're going to strike a deal in the world, go ahead and disobey Him. Because as I look out everywhere, evildoers are getting away scot-free. They're not only prospering, but they test the Lord. They do it right there in front of God and everybody. I saw the other day on the Next Door app. Do you have the Next Door app? It's sending me way too many notifications right now. And I clicked on this one notification. I thought this would be very important. And someone had gotten robbed in a, in a, in a neighborhood here in Franklin, of all places. Um, they had gotten robbed. And, and there, and the person said, in broad daylight. And they've escaped. These people are, as it were, robbing God. They're, they're going against His commands. They're thumbing their nose in, in His direction, and they're getting away with it. If you really want to strike a deal in this world and you're looking for a true profit, true prosperity, something that is of value, then it's better to be an evildoer than to be one who follows the Lord. That's the logic. I want you to, to notice a few things about that, that language. I want you to notice an assumption. An assumption that's behind these seekers of earthly wealth through, as it were, their religious fastidiousness or religious um, practices or, or, or commitments is that they're actually thinking of their relationship with God in transactional terms. Thinking about God's, their relationship with God in transactional terms. They're saying to themselves, look at what I did. I made an investment in uh, putting on sackcloth and ashes. I made an investment in attending Cornerstone Presbyterian Church on All Saints Sunday. I made an investment of reading my Bible and getting up early in the, in the morning and, and praying to the Lord. Surely now my day is going to go well. And then the day falls apart. And I say to myself, this is a bad deal. It is vain. To serve the Lord. There is no profit in it. It always makes me a little bit worried when someone comes to me and they said, you know, I've learned that if I just get up in the morning and I pray and I read the Bible, that the day goes so much better for me. 
I actually really love hearing that in many ways because what often is happening is that their minds are actually renewed, that as they face really difficulties in the day, they're able to bear up under them through the power of the Spirit. But I'm always concerned there's going to be that day where they have a particularly earnest, quiet time with the Lord. They read their favorite passages. They've never felt closer with communion. And then by the time they're at lunchtime, all of the wheels of their life have fallen off. And they say to themselves, God is not faithful. This is not profitable for me. I'm not getting the earthly treasure, the earthly benefits, the power and the influence, the, the alignment at this uh, business deal, the, the sway with, with, uh, with teachers and students, the, the connections with, uh, with, with organizations in my community, with my, my neighbors, uh, my health, my wealth. The, the things are not turning out for me like I had hoped to do. I had put the coin in the Coke machine but the code didn't come out. And you know that sometimes happens. They can sometimes feel that way in their spiritual lives. Know that if you ever feel like you've gotten a raw deal doing what it is that the Lord has called you to do, and He hasn't cashed in on you in the way that you think that He should, you've probably been pursuing Him for something you shouldn't. Something He's not promised you. Maybe earthly treasure. You see, God's after other treasures. He's after other treasures. And it's going to be very easy in that contractual kind of relationship. I expect Him to now do this immediately, this materially, to work these things out. It's, it's easy to become resentful. It's easy to be bitter. It's easy to begin to not just think of our relationship with God in transactional language, but then to begin to compare ourselves with others. Have you noticed that's what they're doing in this text? You know, those evildoers out there, good grief. They're getting all the money and they're stealing it and they're getting away with it while I'm being faithful and being taxed to the hilt and losing everything and my business deals aren't nearly cashing in like theirs. It is vain to serve the Lord. Now, you may not have said it in so many words, but boy, you've thought it. You've thought it more than once. You've thought it this week. This is very easy for us to see God as a means to the end of the life that we're looking for rather than God as the end of the life that we really need that He's called us to. That's fundamentally different, isn't it? You know, God isn't your errand boy on the way to the American dream. He actually is nothing for Him to deconstruct your life to give you a better treasure. He's been known to do that. I joked in the first service, one of the prayer requests that I often, I often give, daily, vigilantly give, is that there would be no wrecks in the Sheridan household today on the road. If you knew our history, you would know how vital that prayer is every day, that Lord just keep them on the road and safe and don't let deer run in front of us. Don't let us stop too late. Let's, you know, all the things. Lord, please keep us on the road today. Now, Am I promised that answer? It's a good prayer. Prayer for the safety and the security of my family. I pray for some manner of maintaining our worldly possessions. It's, an, it's a fine prayer. There's nothing in itself wrong with it. But it's not a promised end. The Bible doesn't say, they will definitely make it to school today, Nate. It doesn't say that. And here's the issue. 
is that sometimes right beside that prayer, I'll pray things like, Lord, grow my children, sanctify them, make them more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I pray that prayer as often as I do the safety one on the road. Now, here's what's interesting. God may be answering the sanctification prayer by giving them a wreck. Have you thought of it that way? Hadn't He done that with you? He often does things like that because He's not interested in earthly treasure. He's interested in heavenly treasure. You know what you're feeling right now? The fear of God. We're, in, we're not in control and He is. And He's often after things we're not after. Better things. More important things. And He might take away things that we really love in order to give us the things we really need. You see, this first group is seeing God as a means to the end of the life that they've scripted and imagined in their own life. They've considered God in transactional terms. They've compared themselves to others. But this second group is actually pursuing God as their very treasure. And that's why I bring the note of the fear of the Lord. Did you notice that in verse 16? It's mentioned twice. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. Fear the Lord. This is those who have begun to pursue God as their very treasure, the one who is the gift in it all. I happened to run across a definition of the fear of the Lord this week by John Piper, which I thought was serviceable. And in addition to it, I kind of want to change a couple of things so you can hear it a couple of ways. Piper says this, he says, to fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending the Lord by unbelief or disobedience. Let me say that again. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending the Lord by our unbelief or our disobedience. That's a fair definition of the fear of the Lord. It's spoken, however, in the negative. Notice that, right? It's the offense of the Lord with unbelief or with disobedience. Let's put it in the positive. The fear of the Lord is the honoring of the Lord with the joy of pleasing the Lord through faith and obedience. That's really what fear of the Lord is. It is the honoring of the Lord at the thought of pleasing the Lord by faith and obedience. You see, the fear of the Lord is actually the recognition that He is the one who is in control. Notice the language that's used here in the text in verse 16. We esteem His name. We lift up His name high. We lift up His name uh, as it is, majestic over all of the earth. We recognize and, and honor His name. And as we honor Him and as we see Him for who it is that He is, high and lifted up, glorious and in control, He's not one who, well, who operates just according to my petitions or requests. He's not one who's taking, uh, taking requests from all kinds of other smaller masters. He's one who's calling the shots from a good place, completely sovereign, wholly righteous. This is the God who we esteem. We lift up His name. Notice we don't take His name in vain. 
We esteem His name, verse 16. And over and over in the Bible, the fear of the Lord and esteeming of the name of the Lord are tied. Do you know what they're tied to? They're tied to growth, sanctification, to living a holy life before the Lord. Listen to David. David says in Psalm 86, 7, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lord, I want to know how to walk in your way. I want to know your commands. I want to, I want to pace in your instructions. In order to do that, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. I see you as one who is utterly worthy to be pleased through faith and obedience surrendered unto you. That's what I long for. You are to me the greatest treasure. I would go through whatever suffering, whatever challenge, whatever trial that you would bring if it meant that at the end of it, there would be the treasure of unending, unbending, complete and total love of communion and fellowship with you. You are my treasure. You are my treasure. Do you hear in that worthiness? Do you hear in that treasure? Do you hear in that value? Do you hear all of those things in the midst of it? To fear God is to prize Him. Is to recognize that He is due honor. And notice that when you fear the Lord, when you esteem the Lord, what begins to flow out of this relationship, verse 18, they are those who serve the Lord. They are those who serve the Lord. You know, it flows naturally, doesn't it, from the fear of the Lord. You want to please those in whom you find pleasure in. You know, when a husband is actually, well, washing the dishes because he just wants to see the smile on his wife's face. Or a a child who actually cleans uh, their room just because they want to see the joy that it brings to their parents. The recognition that the work, the, the walking in the way, wasn't because of a sense of, I'm about to be squashed or receive punishment, but I've received now such joy and pleasure in the one that I long to please, that faith and obedience, trust and followership become, as it were, the instinct of the soul. That's what we long to happen in our hearts, don't we? You long for the Holy Spirit to do that kind of work in you? That you've now begun to release, as it were, the grip of the world because you've begun to lay hold of the world that is to come? Sometimes quoting the Puritans, we'll say in here that the Christian life is really not a matter of choosing heaven over hell. To be quite honest, that's an easy decision and you don't need a tremendous amount of discernment to figure that out. If you hear someone describe hell and you hear someone describe heaven, pretty much everybody will say, I'll take heaven. It's just the way that it is. The challenge actually of the Bible increasingly is not that we choose heaven over hell, but that we choose heaven over earth. That's the challenge that the Bible's giving to us. You know, that's the picture here. God is a great means to my life. He's an incredible resource. 
He's a reservoir of, of strength and of energy that can get me where I want to be. No, God is not a middleman. God is the end. He is the purpose. He is the aim of the Christian life. He is the ultimate treasure of the Christian life. And, and when, when that begins to be actually the purview through which we relate to the Lord, it won't be on transactional or comparative terms. Now we're actually willing to lay the whole of our lives down for the richness of that treasure. Isn't that the parable of the, the field where the treasure is in the field and everything is sold in order to gain the treasure that's buried in the field? Isn't that the picture that's given over and over of the kingdom parables? That Jesus is worth our all? You know, the promises of this text really just kind of blow you away. Right? Those who are willing to fear the Lord, who esteem the Lord, who serve the Lord, notice the promises that He gives to Him. He says there in uh, verse 16 that He sees them and He hears them. Notice the language. The Lord paid attention and He heard them. He paid attention and he, and he heard them. That he listens to us. Those who fear him, those who esteem him, those who, those who serve him, his, his mind and his heart, his ears, they're open up to us. He listens to us. Now, maybe you'd say to yourself, well, I've been trying to get him to listen to me. I've been asking for all kinds of things, and he's not given the things that I've been, been, been asking for. And, and so I keep trying to do this and this and do the right thing so that he'll listen to me. Yes, you've got that wrong. Do you know how easy it is for us to turn, as it were, the spiritual life into this transactional quality? Or, or to think that just because we have fallen short in some way, shape, or form, that God is just, well, he's just waylaying us now. You know, God for His children is only ever preparing you for the heavenly treasure that He has for you. It's often a painful journey. It's almost always a painful journey for all of us. But the intention behind that with regards to the Lord is always love. Love for His children. He hears them and He sees them. So don't think that, well, okay, I'm going to conjure up the fear of the Lord. I'm going to really talk like I esteem Him, and I'm going to do my best to have my quiet time this week and take a casserole to my neighbor. Then He'll listen to me and He'll hear me. No, that's that transactional thing again, you see. He will listen. He will hear, but He might deliver in ways that are wildly different than your expectations. Notice that He sees and He hears them, but notice, secondly, He remembers them. He has a book of remembrance. You know, the Persians were known for these books of remembrance, that these books that listed names and actions of people that they had done good things within their kingdom that deserved reward. They had not yet received reward, but deserved reward. You, you remember how earlier we're told that worship is in vain, serving the Lord is in, in vain. Here's God's answer. No, I've put it in my book. I've put it in my book. I won't, I won't forget your name. I won't forget your action. I won't forget what you've, what you've said and what you've done. It's in the book of, of remembrance. God is not unjust. He will not overlook the good things which you and I have done by the power of the Spirit. He won't overlook them. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Now, it may not show up the way that you expected in the here and now, but it will show up in eternity. You see, this is what it would mean to actually live, as it were, Christ, God as our treasure, 
to fear Him, to esteem Him, to serve Him, than to rest in the promise that He hears us and He pays attention to us, that He's remembering and keeping an account. He's got a ledger for, for, for all that has happened, all that we've done, all that we've, we, we've said. He's got a book of remembrance for these things because what's going to happen? Well, He's ultimately making us His treasured possession, you see. Notice the text. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Isn't this remarkable? We can often pursue God for earthly treasure and then we, we lose it all. But when we pursue God for the heavenly treasure it is, it's because He's already making us His treasure. They are my treasured possession, He says. What an incredible statement. It's a statement that will, that will be duplicated in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 refers to us as a holy nation, a, a, a priesthood, a people for his own possession, Peter writes. The, the, the wonder of this is that the reason that we are beginning, if you're in any way beginning to see God as treasure, as heavenly treasure, enduring heavenly treasure, and you're seeing the things of earth kind of go strangely dim, if you're seeing that begin to happen, what's actually happening is the Lord is revealing the fact that He has already made you His treasured possession. He's already made you His treasured possession. He's looking at you. He's caring for you. He's, he's judged you according to Christ. In union with Christ, you're clothed in His righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. All of Christ's inheritance is yours. That The wonder that He is making of you a treasured possession is, is just an, what an incredible inducement now to make Him your treasured possession, you see. You see, God never actually calls us to do something that He hasn't already done on our behalf. If you're thinking that you need to conjure up making Him a treasured possession, no, no, no. You need to see that He has already made you His treasured possession, and you'll begin to treasure Him. You'll begin to treasure Him. You've got to go deeper into the gospel, you see. Deeper into the sense of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. I will make them my treasured possession. And the question begins, how is He going to make us His treasured possession? I mean, look at us. Look at us. I mean, we don't exactly, I'm going to be honest, some of us, well, all of us, we don't look like treasured possessions. I mean, right? When you look at your life, you, you, a treasure doesn't immediately come to mind, does it? Some of us are like closer to trash than treasure, right? It's like, you know, I could have been sold at the last garage sale, I think. I think that's kind of where I'm coming in, right? You don't think in terms of treasure possession. Notice he says, I'm going to make you a treasure possession. I'm going to make you treasure possession. The question that we need to ask is, how old is he going to do that? Well, there's, a, there's something mysterious about the nature of this text. Notice that little line. When I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Here's what, here's what that treasured possession looks like. I'm going to spare them. I'm going to spare them as a father would spare his own son who has served him. That's how he's going to treat you. 
And when you begin to turn the pages of the Scripture, here's what's remarkable about that, is the way that he makes you his treasured possession is he does the exact opposite with his own son in this text, you see. That the Father treasures you so much that he does not spare his own son, but freely delivers him up for you. Have you ever wondered how treasured you are? That's how treasured you are. That he gave his only son for you. Paul says in Romans 8.32, God delivered up his own son for us. And how will he not now with him graciously give us all things? Because he's not spared his own son. That's how treasured you are. Is it, he says here, the analogy is a father's going to spare the son who has served him. I didn't even spare the son who served me. That's how treasured you are. That's how treasured you are to me. My son served me so faithfully. It was his, it was his meat and his drink to do all of what I wished in heaven above. He was totally obedient. Living a perfect life and then dying a perfect substitutionary death. I did not spare my own son, but delivered him up for you because you're my treasured possession. And then notice this. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's Romans 8.32. You see, the all things is what we're all worried about. I mean, come on, isn't that true? We're worried about our money. We're worried about our relationships. We're worried about our children. We're worried about our health. All things. How will he not also with him, notice, graciously give you all things? And you're like, look at me. I'm falling apart. I don't have money. I don't have health. I don't have relationships. And he's not talking about now. He's talking about forever. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about when you get to heaven and you have the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get to heaven and the new heavens and the new earth and you have a body that will not fail and will not die. He's talking about when you get to heaven and you'll have no more ruptures in your relationship. There will be all perfect harmony in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, how will he not also with him give you all things, all the things that your heart really wants come when you have treasured the Lord in the way that he has treasured you and graciously will give you all things because he didn't spare his own son. You see, when you begin to, that gospel begins to actually come home in your heart, you know what begins to happen? Well, you begin to make your way home to Him. That's what you begin to do. You know, very often it's the afflictions of this life that wean us away from the affections of this life, isn't it? You know, it's that prayer for the safety and that prayer for the sanctification. And there's one we can be assured that He answers. You know, one reason why He won't necessarily assure us of temporal safety here is because He's absolutely committed to our eternal safety. You know, sometimes He will not give you what it is that you need here because He's absolutely committed to give you what you need there. And it takes faith to believe that. And that light becomes a path of obedience. That in the midst of the storm, you have the peace and the calm of Christ. Father in heaven, we would pray for that kind of peace and calm 
in the way that it's needed in a variety of ways even now in this room, even in my own heart. Father, we would pray for that kind of grace right now to dawn afresh on us. Teach us your wisdom and give us the gift of the fear of you that we might learn to treasure you knowing that you have made us your treasured possession. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.